to be heard from the west to the east I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene The man have never left my team, 19, love the right cream Now I'm not a right breed, but I might be In my crease, Nikes, hit up my G I'll still never sell out my theme Well, you know about heritage, you go inherited Don't chill with the snakes Well, Christian, it's been, uh, it's been many, many months Maybe even years since we last spoke When did we last meet? That's a great question. I think it was a conference where we had a couple of very different. You 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 did that thing where you put people who were from very different spectra of life, <laughs> and you put them all into one room, and then you let it explode. So that was fascinating. That um, was very. It was at the Foreign Commonwealth Global Media Freedom Campaign, yes, which is yes, a crazy yes. mouthful. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, you were on a panel with the founder of Rebel Media. <laughs> this is um. I forgot his name, but he's currently really high profile with the stuff with what's happening in, in uh, Canada and the truckers. I, for, mm. I forget his name, um, but Ezra Levant—that's the one. Mm-hmm. That be, was a very be. spirited could debate. Could be. I tried to forget as soon as I could. To be honest, <laughs> he was a, <laughs> he was a one of a kind type. Uh, um, but but you know but I, you know it was fascinating. I think I appreciated what you did there in terms of letting all sides you know being involved in the conversation, and then everyone had their say, and then everyone can make their own you know judgment based on what they hear. And so I guess that's that's what democracy is all about. So yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I think I didn't plan on starting there because I, I do want people to kind of get a sense of how we first met, which I think is actually really fascinating. But. Um, this idea of hearing different perspectives, you know, I, I haven't made a podcast in months. And so I've kind of been, you know, watching the news, listening to the news, biting off my nails really to get involved, especially on this whole a kind of, you know, free speech uh, platforms. I'm sure you've heard about Joe Rogan and all the kind of conversations and, and controversy going on with Spotify, who don't sponsor us. But of course, you may be listening to this on Spotify. What are your thoughts on that, Christian, on this on this notion of, you know, how big tech, I know this might be a, a big topic to dive in on, but how big tech is essentially, you know, how, how how they make sense of figures like Joe Rogan, who some people may think is is a problem to democracy, is a is a problem to public health. What do you make of how they how they've handled it? You know, it's interesting because to me, we talk a lot about the symptoms, right? Hey, this person here, this person here. What do we do with this and this and this? Versus like really going to the root causes. And and to me, you know, that's about we essentially have technology firms who are the new lawmakers, right? Coders being the new lawmakers algorithms are the new laws like when i remember a couple of years ago when i tried to find my friend mohammed on a, on a platform it would correct to marcus right so you have a an inherent bias in these platforms where 20 year old kid somewhere in silicon valley builds an algorithm that in a way then becomes law and i think that's a big problem i think we have to see how we like like solve that like issue that's that's there that they are not elected lawmakers so how do we um build accountability into it but then more importantly also, and we'll probably talk a lot about this, I'm all about mindset and I'm all about trying to figure out how do we early on in our education system have kids learn about the difference between informed opinion and opinion and really kind of going deeper into how do I make my own informed opinion no matter what someone says who kind of has a radio podcast or something else. And so I think that's what I'm very passionate about. How do we kind of reform the education system in ways where we really kind of uh, can tell fake media and, and everything apart, but also where we allow kids to learn how to learn. Mm. It's in, it's interesting because 
um, you may know this too, uh, Nick Clegg, who was the VP of Global Affairs or, or, or of Policy at Facebook, just this week got a promotion. So he's now president of of um of global affairs at, at well now Meta, and which essentially makes him you know it's arguably kind of the second most powerful man in in in, in Silicon Valley. A lot of people are saying odd because obviously Nick Clegg was the deputy prime minister, um, which by the way is not a real position. It kind of created it during the <laughs> just created it during the coalition government. But um, it's interesting to see him at that level now making decisions that affect essentially 3.4 billion people compared to where he was working in the UK and you know obviously only really governing about you know let's say helping to govern if you like something like 74 million people so it's fascinating on on Rogan man you know I just I find it so fascinating the whole Rogan thing because what I've heard some people say is things like oh Spotify need to get on top of this because if it wasn't for them, you know, Joe Rogan wouldn't have this platform. Uh, do you are you aware that this man has pretty much a bigger platform than some major kind of news channels combined? There's something about Rogan that people like. People trust him. They think he's a truth teller. Um, it does annoy me that he keeps playing the card of I'm just a commentator. And you're like, well, hold on, mate. You know, you, you're, you're getting 11 million or so views per episode. Clearly, people think of you more than just a random commentator on the side. And so I wish you would take more responsibility. But this notion that, you know, he's somehow a danger, it's like, well, he, if this is a fringe, crazy voice, he just wouldn't be getting the kind of numbers he's currently getting. And to your point, Christian, we do need to think about, get, and maybe ask you libertarian on this, but we've got to give people the opportunity to make up their own minds at the end of the day if you don't like what someone's saying you don't listen to it you know that, that, that's just always been the case so uh, so i think i fall hard on that uh libertarian side but it'll be interesting to see what happens you know i, I think his show will go on and 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 you know I, I find it interesting to watch you know whether this will even grow his podcast who knows but um we first met, and I wanted to go here because I find it interesting, at the House of Lords. You were a featured guest, a speaker, because um, we, we have a, a, a friend in common, I suppose, uh, uh, Lord Hastings, who's also been on the podcast. And he was hosting what I can only describe as almost like a, what would I call it? Like a, what would you, how would you, what would you call, what would you call the, a brotherhood? Um, I'm afraid of using some of these terms. But he was hosting like a group of men um, who had a kind of unified goal and that we were all interested in growing and developing and he brought you along to speak and you spoke if i can just say i'm not just being nice so powerfully and so kind of animated about this idea of serendipity and kind of creating your own luck so to speak christian i was literally hooked honestly i was on the side like that <laughs> Because I was like, this is so interesting. You were connecting kind of nebulous and ethereal concepts with, with actual practical action. And I always find people skew one way or the other, don't they? They, they kind of fall into that kind of almost academic world, which sometimes I, I get accused of being too much in, where you're just debating concepts. And people are like, yeah, but how do I turn this into action? Like, I've got a business. Like, how do I? You know? so, you, so you did that, and it was so beautiful. What are your recollections of that moment? I mean, do you even remember it? You probably had a million speaking gigs, gigs since. Well, but I succinctly remember, actually, that group, because I think what, 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 what Lord Michael has, has done there, I think, is 
you know, brought together a group of people who, you know, are wanting to make a big change in the world. And, and I think, you know, people like yourself who really want to go out there and, 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 and make that shift. And, and I, I deeply enjoyed the, the curiosity in the room. I think that was, um, uh, you know, that stuck with me and also the, the kind of the genuine interest. I think, you know, a lot of times um, what we see in the world, unfortunately, is that people kind of, you know, it, it's almost like everyone kind of consumes information and then they go and, and, and that's it. Versus I felt like, you know, I've stayed in touch with a lot of people from that group. So I, I, I enjoyed that a lot. I also think that, that you know, Michael, um, like he, he um, deserves a lot of credit for being able to be part of the journey of so many people to such a deep degree. I've learned a lot from this, you know, because I think in a world where, you know, we would like, I think the more you do in the world, the more you want to then also help others do something. But there's a limit to the time you have and, and to the scale at which you can do it. And I think he somehow figured out a way to build a community of of really cool upcoming people who, you know, he really helps through life. And so I think um, that's really something I've been trying to learn from in terms of how do you do that at, at such a kind of scale in a way. And, and yeah, everyone, my, my, everyone at this, like everyone at this meeting, has a story about Michael. That's what I found so fascinating. You go right, like you, you talk with someone, and they say, "Yeah, like Michael changed my life in this way, in this way." It's just fascinating. I'm sure you have one too, right? It's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. fascinating. No, my, Michael's a freak. Uh, Lord, Lord Mike's a freak, uh, I, I, a freak of nature, because you are right. The capacity you need to open up your life to that degree to so many people is tough. I mean, I know people who struggle to mess to keep in contact with like five friends. Do you know what I mean? So when you've got all these ambitious people who are always doing a million things, you know, that in your 20s, your life changes so much that if someone turns away for a few minutes, you, you're now the VP of, of, of like some firm and it's like, what's happened? And somehow he manages to do that, you know, and, and you know, I, I don't know if, if he'll listen, but if you're listening, Mike, keep, keep going. You're great. <laughs> but at, the, at this event, you spoke about the serendipity mindset. What is the serendipity mindset? Yeah, it's really based on the idea that usually when we think about luck, we think about things like, you know, being born into a loving family and, and stuff like that, that in a way are things we can't influence, right? And they cause a lot of societal inequality because they're very unequally distributed. And then there's this smart luck that serendipity is. It's, it's these kind of unexpected positive outcomes that depend on our own actions. So to give you an example, imagine... You're in a coffee shop, and if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you spill a lot of coffee. And so imagine you spill coffee over someone, and that person looks at you. They look slightly annoyedly, but you sense there's something there. You don't know what it is, but you just sense there's something there. Now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry. You walk outside, and you think, ah, what could have happened had I acted on that moment? Like option number two, you start a conversation, that person turns out to become the love of your life, your co-founder, you name it. The point is our reaction to that moment, us making the accident meaningful, imbuing meaning in a, in a crisis, in a way creates that serendipity. And, you know, when you look at up to 50% of innovations, inventions, when you look at how people tend to find love, when you look at how people tend to fall into a lot of jobs, it's these kind of serendipitous things, but it's not just this unexpected moment. It's, it's, we have to do something with it. We have to connect the dots and, and turn it into something useful. And so that's really kind of a serendipity mindset is to say, how do I learn to see more in unexpected moments and then connect the dots so that I actually have more serendipity in my life? That is so interesting. How do I learn to see more in unexpected moments? So I think what really helped me make sense of the idea, especially when you were talking about it, is when you connected it to a, a real life example. I'd love you to do that now. Like, you know, what were like examples have happened in your life where you'd say, 
an accident happened and somehow, because you had a, a the serendipity mindset, say, you were able to make the most out of it and whatever, or even maybe someone you know that, that it's kind of happened to. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. One is, is the potato washing machine because I just love it as a kind of, you know, example in, a, in an organizational context where, you know, you a couple of years ago, a company producing washing machines and refrigerators, they received calls from farmers. And the farmers told them, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. Well, why is the washing machine breaking down? We're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. So what would we usually do? It's not part of our plan, right? That, 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 that people wash their potatoes in that. We would probably try to educate them and tell them, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. It destroys the washing machine. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of a lot of farmers in China who have a similar problem. So yeah. why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? So that kind of unexpected moment, they see a little bit more. They see the potentiality in it and do something. Something re- in in my life recently, um, you know, uh, so so uh, uh, around um, now, kind of you know, eighteen months or or almost yeah, I think something like that ago. Uh, you know, COVID had just happened, and uh, I was one of the first people to get COVID. Uh, talk about bad luck, um, and uh, it, it almost killed that's, me. That's not the serendipity. <laughs> no, certainly not. Um, and so, uh, and so, I was one of the first to get it. It almost killed me. It was really, it was a really tough period in New York. You know, they had uh, Central Park. They had these tents built up because the hospitals were full. It was really, it was a crazy situation, and it was that kind of situation where I was alone in an apartment in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, I was alone in bed and I had all these kind of things of like, Jesus, like, you know, you're almost 40 years old now. You're so focused on passion and purpose and whatever, but you completely neglected building like a meaningful love relationship and like maybe creating family and and things like that. And so that kind of like, like crisis in a way opened my, my eyes a little bit to that idea of, okay, Hey, I think I'm ready for like a proper kind of love relationship here. I'm ready to, to be there. A couple of months later, um, I sent an email around to, to people uh, to do like a socially distanced outdoor gathering with a couple of people in New York. An old friend of mine came to it who just had had her divorce. Um, and um, she she just kind of like split up with her boyfriend, uh, with her husband. And, uh, you know, we kind of like, there's a long story to it. But essentially, we went for dinner at some point. Um, she's now my wife. We have a newborn. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of that. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's that kind of, that was a very accelerated story uh, to it. But uh, the, the, the point is that there, there was an inflection point, which was really, you know, the opening eyes to, hey, shoot, like there is a part of my life that I had completely neglected and I have yeah. to open my eyes to it. Um, and, and she had something similar happen in, in her life. And so, you know, when we talk a lot about uh, a serendipity mindset, a lot of it is really the kind of alertness and openness to the area of focus that we, we focus on. Right. And so when you put your mind to something, that's why people then tend to, you know, once you kind of get employed by a certain company, you see their logo everywhere. Or, you know, once you think you can find money in the street, you tend to find more money because you're looking for it. You expect it to be there. And then it tends to become more of your focus. And so that's kind of a big piece of that mindset to say, once I start expecting the positive, the unexpected, it starts to happen more because it is there all the time, but we tend to miss it all the time. I mean, I think the way you told that story you you really rushed that peroration. That's why I nearly gasped. Because you were like, you know, email married kids. I said, what? Hold on. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, that's Thank amazing. You. Honestly, I mean, I mean, people often ask, like, yeah, you know, what did you learn in lockdown? And I'd be like, I got more sleep. You know, 
I learned to slow down. You really had a whole life-changing experience. That is quite something. Honestly, congratulations. That's amazing. So this, I take your point because there's a, there's a thing we often talk about, this idea of, and I think you mentioned it in passing there, you know, where you maybe you, you know, before you start learning how to drive, you literally don't think cars exist. Before I could drive, I literally just got on the bus and just relaxed. And the minute I started my first driving lesson, it's like my mind opened up to the idea of driving. And from that day on, I just kept on seeing cars everywhere and really seeing how cars are made and the different logos. And I was like, what is that? So I started researching how cars work and a whole world opened to me when I had that first driving lesson. Um, and so there is something about kind of a shift in your mindset. And when that happens, you know, you've been exposed to the world or even navigating the world uh, through a totally different way. The, the same thing happened, and I, and I would love you to speak to this. You know, I'm, I'm super passionate about young people. And one of the reasons I'm passionate is because, yeah, you know, as a black person, say in the UK, I'm fully aware. <laughs> I'm well aware of some of the structural barriers that may exist and through no fault of, of, of white people or of brown people. I think most people are just, they're just victims of, of systems. And so they don't really, uh, you know, I don't think there's like a, there might be some kind of evil white guy trying to put me down. But for the most part, I don't think people are like that. I think most people have their own stuff they're worrying about. However, at a certain age, I don't remember when it was, but I remember maybe it was a speech from somebody or some sort of event, me telling myself mentally that, you know what, Mike, I'm never going to complain about structural barriers on a personal level. I'm just going to pretend they don't exist and just work hard and just kind of do. Now, I know some people may be listening back to me thinking, oh, yeah, that's really privileged. You're very lucky. Sure. I'm just telling you what I did here. But I can say for myself, when I kind of took ownership of my narrative and how I wanted my story to be changed or told, it actually affected how I ended up navigating the world. Like I genuinely, you know, would have experiences that friends would tell me that that was a racist experience, but I would just, I would just be like, oh. I mean, there was one time where I was a keynote speaker at a conference in Greece in Thessaloniki. I said, my face was on the poster. I grew up there to speak and I speak. And after someone comes to me, a, a, a white uh, lady, and she was like, you speak really well. I could like, and she looked really shocked. And it, and it was just a little tinge of, <laughs> it was almost as though to be like, oh, I don't know you guys speak like this. <laughs> if I knew it, I would have hung out with more of you guys kind of thing. Now I just kind of just said, oh, thank you and moved on. When I told a friend, she was like, no, no, that's, that's someone being, you know, you know, being whatever. But I just said, I don't care. Because I think all we can control is our mindset. We cannot control what other people do to us. I know this podcast has turned to a bit of an inspiration or whatever, but, but I'm putting it out there. But here's, what, here's where I want to hear from you, Christian, is how do people actually have this changed mindset? Because you're somebody who I would describe as a polymath. And I, I and I spoke at the conduit not too long ago about this term polymathy and 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 you know where it comes from and so and I actually know someone who wrote a book about kind of what is a polymath a, a, a whack wackiest I forgot, I, forgot, I forgot his name. Anyways, you're somebody who has a lot of interests, but you've somehow managed to kind of master or at least you know develop it, it to such a deep extent at all these different things. So your mindset is not the kind of ordinary or average mindset. How is it that you've coached your mindset over the years? And if you were to speak to somebody who's maybe thinking, 
I want to have this serendipity mindset or I want to change my mindset. I know my mindset is an issue. What would you say to them? That's a great question. I think, Mike, you touched on a really a couple of really important points there. The one is really around, I think, you know, societal inequality that I think we're all, you know, us are very aware of it. And unfortunately, a lot of people are not. And, and that's a big issue because what it does is you have very different potential starting points for serendipity, right? So to your point, if you are uh, someone who grows up in, in, a, in a part of, of, of London where you don't have access to particular networks or, you know, you have access, but, but those kind of networks are a bit kind of old uh, boy group type style where you can't really access them uh, to the same degree others can, your base level of potential serendipity is very different from someone who, 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 who starts out, you know, sitting in the West Village in New York and has education and access to networks and so on. And so I think there's always the kind of structural component to your point at the same time as the mindset component. And so I'm very excited about working on both in terms of saying, how do we work on the structure? So how do we think about, for example, education systems? It's not enough to just give someone an like a scholarship to a great school. You also got to give them three mentors who can help them afterwards with a job. You also got to like build an ecosystem with them so that actually they can do something with it. Versus just kind of like pretending that now they are kind of having a similar starting position. Um, I, I think there's a lot around biases. We can definitely dive more into that. And then I think at, at the same time, to your point, a lot of my work is in, in extreme resource constraint settings. So, for example, in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, where, you know, people, um, there's high like crime rates, there's, there's a lot of kind of discrimination and, and other things. And there's an amazing organization that I've been extremely inspired by called Reconstructed Living Labs. And Reconstructed Living Labs is people out of the local community who said, okay, we don't trust the government, we don't trust multinationals and all these others, but we trust each other. So, so is there a way that we can build a community where we can train each other how to, for example, use social media to build a business or to use social media to tell our stories and inspire people? And so they built this low-cost education approach, and they now reach hundreds of thousands of people with almost no budget. And the way they do that, and I like it was one of the most inspiring um, uh, moments I've ever had when I went the first time, and uh, and now a very good friend of mine, I asked him, what should I never ask you? Me as the, the, the person coming into your context, me as the person who, you know, has no idea of, of, of how tough you had it in, in your life, what should I never ask you? And he said, never ask me first what I need. Because if you ask me what I need, you put me into the position of the victim, the beneficiary, someone who kind of like needs your benevolence. Versus if you can't can come in and say, what can we do together? And then we can work on all these other things as well. Then essentially we kind of like, you know, start on the same uh, level here. And to me, that was a game changer. Getting away from this kind of resource focus, resourcing, you know, good nutrition, da -da -da only to really the idea of how can everyone create their own smart luck? Because that's the one thing that empowers people. That's the one thing we talked a lot about this also during our meeting with Michael, right? That when you go, especially in, 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 in resource constrained settings, there's always this idea of, oh, it's just about resourcing and making people a bit less poor. No, like people want to create their own luck. They want to feel the meaning that comes from doing something proper. And, you know, to your point, I think in my life, I, like, look, I started out like, with blind luck, right? I was born into a loving family. I, 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 like I, I have had a lot of things like as a good starting position. And then I try to also kind of, you know, develop a mindset that allows to really kind of develop to your point, like depth in different areas. And I think the one thing that, that I found very like helpful there is in every field, whenever I go into a new field, I try to understand who's the most inspiring person in this field, who are the kind of 10 people who I feel, wow, like if I could like learn from them and I could do it at their level, 
I don't want to be like them. I don't think that's helpful. But but I want to I want to I want to be able to do some of the things they do. Actually, those people then working with them, learning from them, co-authoring with them, building a company with them. I found that to be extremely helpful because what it allows you to do is to 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 become that kind of multiplier where you don't have to always have everything yourself in terms of knowledge and whatever, but you're essentially just working with the right yeah. people who can then go into the depth that you that you need in some fields. And so long story short, I'm a big believer of of trying to tap into communities that allow us to to do this kind of deep dive, but in a way that, uh, you know, depending on what you want to do with life, um, you can you can focus more on the big picture rather than just kind of always having to yeah. go into the, the deal. No, I mean, I think that's brilliant advice, honestly. And I think folks listening to this, you know, will recognize, um, I hope that this is stuff that works and you're speaking from a real life context. You know, one of the big <laughs> things that, that I think millennials or Gen Zs for the most part get is that, they are often very wide, but not very deep. And what I mean by that is, um, because of the ease of kind of uh, the, the ease of access to information. Of course, I don't need to remind anybody, but that we live in a digital age, it's very easy to kind of sit on Wikipedia, click links and links and links, and build a very general knowledge about a lot of different things, which is an amazing kind of. It's, I mean, I've done it. I've sat on Wikipedia for like two hours, just kind of clicking links and reading about random stuff. But that's not quite polymathy, is it? That's just kind of having interest in kind of, you know, in a bunch of different things. What would you say to kind of young people who maybe have this challenge where they go, I'm interested in like a hundred things. I know a bit about all of them. I have a general degree, like in maybe like politics or something like that. So it's not specific enough what do I do, right? You know, uh, how do I kind of either become an expert in all of them and what does it really take? And I would love to hear you speak frankly about that. But also, you know, how do I pick what to do when I have such an interest in different things? But you know, I, I have friends, uh, younger kind of people I know who change jobs like every two years, which is not a problem. But of course, if you do that forever or, for, or you know, for you know, 10, 15, you don't really get any momentum. So what, what would you speak to to, to, to that? Yeah, it's a great question because I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on young people to find their purpose, their passion, you know, like figure it all out. And I think that isn't necessarily always helpful in the sense that a lot of times, you know, I grew up in Germany. We love plans. We love strategies and so on. Then you go out like into real life and you think, oh, my God, like this is anxiety enhancing that like not much you can you can plan here and your passion changes over time and your purpose changing over time and, and so on. And something that I found more useful to think about is, is a core curiosity, like to really think about what is it in life that I'm really curious about? And is that then something that I could build some kind of business model around? So can, can, it, can it give me some kind of income? Or if it can't, is it something that I can embed into what I'm doing at the moment or what, what could, me give, could, could give me an income? Um, I highly recommend for those of you who are looking for, for that kind of um, development at the moment, the, the Stanford D School, they have this design your life approach where essentially the idea is, okay, how do you, you know, combine what you love doing with what you're good at, with what you, um, what, what, what actually pays the bills. And, and I think finding that sweet spot can be interesting, but um, I think a lot of times actually, again, finding what you really love and finding what you're really good at, like is a process, right? And you don't arrive there at once. And I'm a big fan, um, Mike, we can talk probably about this in a second, like things like the hook strategy, where you're essentially identifying what are three themes in my life that I'm curious about? So let's say to your point, um, maybe you 
uh, studied engineering, so you have a certain passion for engineering, but you're also super excited about history and you also love painting. Um, these are kind of three very different things. But, but if you build that into different types of conversation now as you go along, and if you seed that with people, people might serendipitously tell you about things you not even know. That, that, you know, there might be a job that is about working with an engineering company that also thinks about space design and how you can place art in those spaces and at the same time wants to bring music into that, whatever it is. So you can combine those different passions, right? You can't know that. You don't know what's out there a lot of times. And, and so I'm a big fan of trying to identify these curiosities and then seed them out there. Someone who's doing it really well, um, you, you might know him, uh, Ollie Barrett in London. He uh, is a technology entrepreneur. And if you would ask him this dreaded what do you do question, you know, that, that we all get at the moment, he wouldn't just kind of let it like go as a kind of, oh, I'm a technology entrepreneur and that's it. He would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently read into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving yeah. you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture and maybe they can hire you. My God, such a coincidence. We are hosting piano sessions. You should stop by and, and join us, whatever it is. My point here is, I think we, we can take the pressure away from people that they have to have it all figured out, that they have to know exactly whom to contact, how and whatever, but rather think about what is it that really kind of like feels exciting to me? And then how can I build that into conversations? And how can I plug into communities, both virtually and online? Royal Society of Arts, they have public events where you can go to, LSE has public events. I would really plug into those spaces whenever there's public sessions. Yeah. And that's the way where... Mike, one thing that I've done actually that I found super useful, especially when you are someone who might not have like a lot of contacts or so, that you essentially go to one of these events. Let's say LSE hosts um, the Eric Schmidt type Google person and you're an engineer and you always were excited about joining Google or something. You go to that session, right? Let's say 500 people in the audience and you are the first one who asks the first question. When they ask, anyone has questions, you you jump up so that they can't ignore you and you're like, hey, yeah, I have a question, um, but not too much, right? But like in a, <laughs> in a, in a charming way, of course. Yeah. And so, and then and then when, the, when you can ask your question, you set a hook. And the way you do that is you say, thank you so very much, dear speaker. So you make it all about the speaker, right? It's all about the speaker. As someone who recently went into XYZ and is searching for XYZ, so that's your hook, like you built in whatever hook you have, I had the question, what you would advise, blah, blah, blah. So again, like you're making it about the speaker, you ask for advice, but what's really happening here is in a room of 600 people, after the session, there's always, always, always four, five, six people coming to you saying, my God, such a coincidence. My brother went through the same thing. Like, I want to put you in touch with him. That's My good. sister, like, employs people like you. You should get in touch. My point is you can leverage the social capital of other people yeah. by being smart about how you cast your hooks. And so I'm a big fan of really, like, leveraging these public spaces for that. I love this. I, this for me is like brain food. I'm like, yes, more. I'm having that moment I had when we first met at the House of Lords because... You know, I don't. I haven't read the book yet, but it seems as though what we're talking about is somewhat similar to the connecting the dots book you've written, which I promise I, you didn't give me any notes before. It just kind of happened that way, um, because you're you are so 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 right, and I know this from painful experience. You know, growing up, I I was that kid who thought, you know what, I've got seven passions how do i build a life out of these seven passions and that was the bane of my life you know i, I was like i want to be an athlete i want to be a i'm passionate about this and whatever i'm so helpful i'm so you know thankful you know for me it was faith that really brought that idea to me that maybe my life is to have a mission 
And the, along or in pursuit of that mission, I might do six or seven different things. But uh, that's, that, like, that's okay if those things don't all line up neatly because mm. it's not my job to make everything in my life line up. Like, who am I trying to make my life pretty for? You got to ask that yourself that sometimes, you know. I used to be frustrated when, you know, I, I couldn't say like, oh, you know, I've been a lawyer for five years. or And I used to, when I was younger, I used to dream of being like, oh, yes, I've been a, you know, a doctor for 20 years. And it's like, well, hold on. Who does that matter to, really, that I've done the same thing for 20 years? Is it me or is it just... So other people kind of think that I'm ridiculously great at this one thing and I've been doing it for a long, long time. I think the minute we kind of set ourselves free from other people's, say, expectations, perceptions, so on and so forth, then we are able to do what you're saying, which is almost follow our curiosities and passions, allow them to kind of lead us to all sorts of different relationships. And typically those deep relationships are then in turn what form meaningful kind of bonds which then leads to doing amazing things together right uh and so whether it's and it's happened before where you know the, the, the you know one of the companies I'm, I'm looking after say where we've got a project and um you know we're in a meeting and we're like okay you know we need a marketing person for this project and someone goes i know a really great guy and they take his name and i go yeah but there's this guy that i really like <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he's good as well and nine out of ten times i go for the guy i like because ultimately you want to do stuff with people you enjoy being around who stimulate you so relationships oddly enough rather than just scrolling down indeed and looking for a job relationships can actually kind of get us to I, t tell me a time where relationship has kind of opened a door for you that you kind of didn't think would ever be open or something like that I mean, it's almost which time hasn't, right? I feel like, <laughs> like, 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 literally. I mean, to your point, like my whole life has been around relationships, and 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 I think to your point, what's what one thing that I've been trying to work really hard on is to really think about how do you make, how do you avoid being transactional about a relationship? How do you avoid kind of just going to someone when you need something? But how mm -hmm. do you very consciously develop a friendship that you know is because you, to your point, you like the other person. And then out of this magic will happen anyways. Like it's kind of like that's where the most interesting things happen. And so I'm a big fan of, of really kind of thinking more about first, what can I do for the other person? And then actually a lot of beautiful things come from it. A lot of times we don't know what it is, and but but it, it feels good and it's it's it also leads to 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 magic a lot of times. And so I'm a big fan of, of really mm -hmm. thinking about and, and and meaningful relationships. And you know, I one thing that 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 um what you said before that also um you know about the the kind of importance of how do you find meaning in your work how do you find meaning in your relationships i'm a big fan of so everyone who listens i recommend google deathbed regrets and what will come up is um i think the guardian or some um some 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 outlet wrote about nuns essentially asking people on their deathbed so what do you regret not doing in your life and nobody ever said you know uh, I would have loved to work as a doctor two more years, or I would have. Uh, uh, well, I mean, doctor is doctor is a very benevolent, but but you know, <laughs> let's say kind of, I would have loved to have five more cars in the garage, right? Like these kind of materialistic things that are more about like impressing others and stuff like that. And most people essentially say, I wish I had developed more meaningful relationships. I wish I had lived a life that's true to my values and true to who I want to be. And so, you know, as someone who now has had two near death experiences in his life, I can tell you we completely overestimate how long we have it on this earth. And I think if we postpone stuff, if we're saying, yeah, like 
I'll just work in this job for five years so that I have enough money to then do this and then do this. It might not work out because cancer, you might run in front of a car and whatever it is. So I would really think from the perspective of, yes, of course, like we all need to somehow pay the bills. But by any means, don't assume you have 10 years to then do the things you're really excited about. Like try to figure out what is a business model for now. Uh, You might not have the time, unfortunately. Yeah, that's so good. Because that's one of the key things we learned from COVID. But as human beings, we we are very quick at forgetting lessons. Yeah. So I know people are saying stuff like when COVID was happening, they're like, oh, my God, I am living for now. I am enjoying my... And then a couple of kind of, you know, they 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 they, they uh, ease up the restrictions a bit. And people are like, yeah, I'll go back to work in a job I hate for 10 years <laughs> so I can have money to start a VC yeah. firm. And, and you're like, well, well, you don't have the 10 years. So you know, I, I totally buy your point, I think that's so good and yeah that, that's one of the key things i learned from covid too is just kind of um i, I I'm, I'm lucky i actually didn't get covid at all but um being alone and 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 uh watching a lot of my friends who again say run businesses really you know there's something about and this i don't want to be too businessy here but and i don't want to glorify struggling but this is how i feel so i probably should say it and it's that it's great when you are fighting, as I was at some stage for the survival for the survival of like businesses, when you know it's a meaningful fight. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Where, where you're like, this is tough right now, but this is not just tough like, oh, woe is me. This is like, I'm growing and I'm involved in a meaningful fight. And I was thinking about this concept with a, with a friend not too long ago, and we were saying, I just don't think it might be in the, maybe because we're in the West, it might be because we're relatively well off when you compare us to other countries. But, and again, I know this may sound privileged because some people listening to this may go, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a fight, mate. <laughs> but generally speaking, um, some, myself and some of the friends I'm around, we were like, maybe we don't have enough meaningful fights. Like we haven't really, you know, the, the way we've been engaging with the world is almost as, if, almost as if it's a non-contact sport. You know, we can't be watching issues going on, maybe sending five pounds to RSP. You know, you're like, I'm, you know, a lot of stuff is going on, but yeah, you know, I've just got my job what would you say to someone like that? Would you encourage them to kind of jump in into a world issue to get stuck in? Or or, or would you say, actually, no, you know, kind of stay put, you know, keep going. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And, you know, it it comes to, I've had a lot of um, red wine conversations about a related topic, um, which is essentially, is it, is it worth to strive for contentness, right? For kind of happiness that is just contentness in the sense of that if you are relatively privileged in your life, I feel you also then might feel the desire to actually leverage this to do something for others, right? And, and to really not just be content for yourself, but, but, but to actually go out there and do something. And, and I always love that, um, that idea that um, um, discomfort is the, the admission to, to living a meaningful life, right? And, and I think it's, it's in a way um, where a lot of meaning and, 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 and and a lot of the kind of what it what feels good about success also comes from that you actually endured something to get there, um, and I think that's very different. You know, I, I think Mike, I, I, like I, in my mind, is kind of two things in terms of the one is the kind of literal fight or flight, struggle to survive, 
um, you know, people around you dying because you can't afford healthcare type that I'm seeing here a lot in, in the US. So I think that is something that, that I think one needs a certain base level probably of, of not having that absolute fight for survival piece. But then I think in terms of, you know, when you think about it in business terms, like, you know, hey, is this kind of like working out or not? Like I've had that in my startups that I've, I've been involved in, you know, where you fight for survival on the financial side and so on. And man, this is this is tough. But also then when you get on the other side, you're like, wow, like we're actually really excited about this now. And so it's to exactly your point. I think that a lot of times we try to avoid discomfort, even though it can give us a lot of meaning because I see that now in parenting, right? Same in parenting. Everyone's just winging it. So essentially there's a lot of discomfort, but also it gives you so much joy and meaning. And so um, I'm with you there in terms of that. I think a lot of times, and let me give you actually an example. Um, I am... Um, a lot of the work we're doing is, is you know, um, thinking about what are some of the self-limiting constraints we all have that hold us back from having more serendipity, right? So when you sit in a meeting, you have that unexpected idea and um, you, you don't bring it up because you have imposter syndrome, fear of rejection, you name it. Um, and, and so a lot of times we might see an opportunity that comes up unexpectedly, but we might not act on it because we don't feel ready, worthy, you name it. And one of the things that I've, I've seen in my life, you know, I used to kind of have a bit of a fear of rejection type thing where I then had to work on, like, how do you overcome a fear of rejection? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found fascinating is when you then purposefully put yourself into positions of rejection, you would build a muscle for it, right? You, you learn how it's normal. And I, a friend of mine um, did something. I don't necessarily endorse it because I think there's kind of a lot of different layers to it, but I always loved the, the sentiment of it. So he essentially at some point said, look, I will go into coffee shops where I know that I will never go again to, and I will ask for free coffee. I will just go in and say, can I have a free coffee, please? And, 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 and you know, obviously, that's kind of setting yourself up for rejection. So kind of it, it trains your rejection muscle. But also, funny enough, then a lot of times, actually, people are like, oh, where's the hidden camera? And then it starts a conversation, gets into something um, 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 uh, interesting. And so the point here is really, how do you put yourself sometimes knowingly into discomfort so that you get used to the idea that discomfort is part of living a meaningful life? Um, and it gets easier than others as well. That is very interesting. I, some people listening to this may want to try that. There's no way. Did he? Did, he didn't do this in New York, did he? No, no, no. That was London. Because I, so I, I spent some time in New York just a few a few weeks ago, and um, it's very interesting. New York for me, and you can. I mean, you live here, so you can let me know what you think. It feels like the. You know, I just bought a coffee machine, so like all my metaphors are kind of coffee related. <laughs> it feels like the purest form and the richest form of capitalism. <laughs> like it, it just it it. And maybe you know, I was I wasn't there for that long, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But it just it just like when I got out of my taxi, I could smell capitalism. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that smells like disparity between the rich and poor that smells like the widest gap between uh the richest and the poorest in the country i was like yeah high rent prices it just it just has such a capitalist what is it like living in new york well look i think it's i i think you know in 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 some ways so so it's interesting because you know one of the reasons why I both love and not so much love New York is for exactly that reason, right? That, that people here, almost everyone is hustling something. Every, almost everyone's trying to sell something. Almost everyone's trying to somehow kind of like you know like scale something and and whatever. And so so I think 
there's the social inequalities and and things that I think you know in the U.S. I've I've never really understood why there's so much kind of systemic problems that you know around healthcare and 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 homelessness and so on. I think that's a big theme. Um, and then at the same time, I also think you know I've appreciated the entrepreneurial environment where you go out there, you want to publish a book, and then you know people rally around you and you publish that book. And so it's kind of there's there's a momentum here. I think that you have nowhere else um, that that I've experienced here. So I feel like you have you have both the the good and the bad coming with it. It's interesting. I was having a big debate with a friend about how they name their streets as well. You know, you know, 42nd, 34th. And I was saying, this is odd because London, as you know, all our streets have quirky, interesting yeah. names. I live in, you know, George Street and there's just 41, 43. And then you said, oh, the reasons because you know, it's then easier to find where people are because you, know, you can just be like, I'm on 32nd. So I'm on 39th. You're like, oh, they're just, uh, you know, seven blocks away whatever well not seven whatever it is five blocks away i don't know if i agree with that um i think uh, i still think i think i'm a londoner at heart so for me london is still still i mean you've lived in in both cities i believe um where, where would you say is a natural home for you uh, bear in mind the main listenership of this podcast is in london so just a, a tidbit for you no there, pressure there right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what 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 yeah which one do you prefer but also what, what what are the key differences would you say to someone who may be planning to live in one of those places yeah you know it's fascinating because um i i'm very nostalgic to speaking with you because i i miss london i i lived there for 10 over 10 years um i you know had most of my kind of big inflection points in life i had there um I, what I always loved about London, I think no other city in the world has, is that I don't know if there's a, if there's a diplomatic way to say it, but I think there's no nobody who comes to London wants to become British. Like 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 in, in almost every other country, like people try to assimilate to yeah. a certain kind of idea of what it means to be American, what it means to be German, what it means to be Swedish. And I feel in London, everyone's just like, I'm the Azeri, I keep my Azeri tradition, and then <laughs> I go to my Azeri friend, and I'm like, great, like, let's learn about Azerbaijan, or let's learn about Exodus. And so I actually always loved this idea that London, I feel, is the only, like, truly, truly, truly kind of city in the world where people keep their identities and don't kind of try to like assimilate too much to like a ruling identity. I think, again, like in every other city in the world, there's always tendencies and there's always something. But I've always loved this idea that that I learned more about the world. I mean, a lot of my work has been, you know, South Southern Africa, Mexico and, and so on. But I learned the most about the world in London when I went to the home of my Nigerian friend and they have their customs and traditions and I dive in and then I go to the home of my, you know, Azeri friend. And, and so I've always loved this idea that like people are just like, Jesus, like, let's just integrate like, you know, our, our, um, our life here. And so I, I always loved that as a truly kind of um, cosmopolitan city. And, 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 and that's why I was so hurt with, with the, with the whole Brexit thing, because I think, look, like it, it's just, you know, it just very kind of it's one of these things, you know, coming from a country where where I think people missed up, messed up a lot of things in history. And yeah. you grow up in high school learning about the danger of populism. Um, it was just kind of very disillusioning to see kind of the last years in, in the UK and, and um, a country that I love so much or, or you know, uh, uh, England as a, as a country that I love so much. It's, it's, it's been a bit of a pity, but I guess London still is is the the hotspot. Well, a lot of people think the UK is London, right? Or they exactly. think like London, which is, which is probably annoying to my Mancunian friends or, or Liverpoolian ones. But you know, Christian, you actually didn't answer the question because you're you. I think you have a politician. <laughs> Gotta be diplomatic here. <laughs> <laughs> you have a politi you have a politician's bent there because uh, you know 
some of my keen listeners will say, yeah, but he didn't pick one. Um, so, <laughs> so you know, it it reminds me of um, I remember Ronald Reagan, uh, Ron, the 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 old U.S. president. Um, he wanted to cut off the hand of one of his uh, of his uh, academic advi uh, economic advisors because the, they would always say, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's like, I just need one hand, like just give me one opinion here. And it's like, no, it's like there's a balance. <laughs> that is very good. So, Listen, I'm I'm like you on many issues where people people, especially on politics, because you know I see the madness on both sides, and I kind of fancy myself as a bit of an outsider. You know, I do that classical thing where people say, you know, where do you sit? And I was like. Uh, a libertarian, you know, kind of just, <laughs> just kind of outside, <laughs> just on the random corner there, you know, and I'm redefining libertarianism based on who I'm speaking to. Um, so, so I do get it. I do get it. I wonder, you know, just before we, we kind of wrap this up, I would love you. I mean, it would be, it would be remiss of me to be speaking to a professor in global economic affairs and not ask them about what's happening in the UK. We are having... I don't know. I don't know how much um, kind of time you spent on this, but we, we no, we have a cost of living crisis right now in the UK. Uh, things, you know, rents as high as ever been. Energy costs are going up. Uh, cost of common goods are going up. Inflation's high. It's every thirty year high. Um, what do you make of how the UK is kind of handling? Um, and, and the UK government really um, is is kind of um, legislating around around this this cost of living crisis right and and for, just from the outside looking in what, what 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 would you say to that um to, to to how things are going here well look mike i think it's it's time for for a special election you should run uh, they they need a they need a new uh, you know like like someone who can actually make something happen um and and um, and so so i'm i'm keeping my fingers crossed that you actually do run in a few years then um but um Look, look, I, I, I've been flabbergasted by the whole, you know, the, like the, the whole last years. I mean, generally around the world, right? I mean, I feel like there's almost no country where you would say people stay. There's just a lot of things. I think things like COVID show you how unprepared everyone is for the unexpected. And, and I think as someone who studies the unexpected, um, I'm a big fan of really building that muscle. And I think a lot of them haven't built that muscle and they were completely surprised by everything. And then they're trying to figure it all out. And, and, and then, you know, add to that Brexit and all these different things and, and you end up with a kind of very complex scenario. One of the things though, uh, Mike, I will say, like, I think there's the macro thing, which, you know, looks, looks a bit gloomy, but then I think for your listeners, right. What I've always found fascinating, look, the, the, like countries usually like, there's the country thing, which I think leads to a lot of distress with people. And I think like as soon as possible, politicians like have to get their thing together. Yeah. But then at the same time, I think as an entrepreneurial in mind, these are the kind of moments where you can really do something because now you can come up with new business ideas. Now is the kind of time to give an example when COVID happened, right? And everyone was like, oh my God, now everything's going down the drain. There were breweries who said, you know what? Like, okay, our restaurant customers are closing down, so we can't sell our alcohol to them. But hey, maybe we can use that as hand sanitizer. And now we sell hand sanitizer and we can become much bigger because now people actually need that hand sanitizer. Yeah. And so I think, you know, from the perspective of an entrepreneur, you never want to waste a good crisis, right? And so it's kind of this thing where I think now is the time where you're thinking about, okay, what's my key curiosity? And if like there's a, a crisis around this, is there a new startup that you could build around how rent yeah. pricing could be adjusted for some people, how rich people could cross subsidize like poor people in some ways, whatever it is, like now is the time where I think entrepreneurial ideas are needed more than ever because yeah. nobody has figured out. And Mike, last point on this, I think this is the exciting thing about there's a lot of distress that came with COVID, right? And I think a lot of like people, including myself, we have lost people. We have, we have had a lot of distress for it. 
And at the same time, I think it has shown us that literally everything is possible, both for the good and the bad. And, and I think like that's the kind of periods where, where really interesting entrepreneurial ideas kind of usually develop and, and come out. And so now is the time where you can really kind of build things. And so I think I'm very, very um, uh, excited about that kind of potential of, of people yeah. now saying, you know what, I don't take anything for granted. I don't take for granted how government works. I don't take for granted how institutions work. I built my own kind of thing now and, 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 and don't take that for granted. Okay. Mike, to me, that was one of the biggest learnings in life everyone's just winging it but now it's finally out in the open and so you know kind of let go of this idea that you have to be an expert you know coming back to our discussion earlier yes like there's all these 10,000 hour rules and whatever but look i know a lot of people who just they're excited about something they 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 then start they kind of iterate quickly they build something they go out there and they make it happen or two times it doesn't work and then you make it the third time happen, right? That's part of the process, but it's really getting yeah. out there, getting it started rather than waiting for when the economy is better and da, da, da. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Most people will now wait for the economy being better. No, this is exactly when you start, like, like when others are waiting, right? That's the one. I mean, I think I, I think I have, the, I have the title of this podcast, Never Waste a Good Crisis, because <laughs> both personally, but also business-wise, you know, my mind just went back to 2008 there which many people call the kind of start of the raw expansion of the digital age with all these, I mean, mm. out of the economic crisis, we saw, we saw well, Facebook was a bit earlier, but we saw Twitter, we saw, we saw Snapchat, we saw a lot of companies really seize on how cheap it was to borrow. The fact, I mean, they, I, won't, I, won't, I won't belabor the point, but that's great. Never waste a good crisis. This has been great uh, on so many levels. You know, I really enjoy this. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I want you to come back again. You you generally are welcome. You know, I know you you are um you've got a newborn and so there's, there's <laughs> you're gonna be occupied a bit for the next few for the next few months. Well for well forever really, but okay, you so. know, <laughs> specifically for the next few months. But please come back soon and and and, and tell us uh, more about the books. So have you got something else you're working on or, or how can people kind of connect with you? Have you got anything you want people to kind of to, to get involved with we'll, we'll, we'll leave with you kind of wrapping that up yeah well it's i mean please feel free to you know connect on linkedin um on twitter i'm at chris serendip on, on twitter my next years are really focused on over the last kind of 10 years we developed a science-based framework around how do you cultivate serendipity and how can this be a key way for people to find hope to decrease anxiety and to to create impact and so now the kind of next five years or so is really focused on how do we take that into schools? How do we take that into organizations? So delighted to connect with people who are, you know, at the intersection of those different areas and, 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 and want to take that forward in some way. When it be heard from the west to the east, I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene. The man have never left my team, 19, learned the right creed. Now I'm not a right breed, but I might be. In my crease, Nikes, hit up my G. I'll still never sell out my theme. Well, you know about heritage, you go inherited. Don't chill with the snakes.